soldiers on the Victrola High. Mama's dancing, baby on the shoulders. The sun is setting like molasses in the sky. The boy could sing you how to move everything. Always wanted more. He leave you longing for. with my father on our black and white TV. Aunt Rose, Uncle Hammy, and my cousin Maida had a fancy color TV. They only lived a few floors below us in the same apartment building in the Bronx, but Aunt Rose wasn't much of a baseball fan, and there always seemed to be something she thought was more important. No, Hammy, we can't watch baseball. The Perry Como show is on. <laughs> no, Hammy. It's the Esther Williams Aqua Spectacular. <laughs> Dad and I didn't mind, as long as we watched the Yankees. Greatest team in baseball, kid. Then one day, quite unexpectedly, he announced, it's time you saw them in person. You and me, kid. We're going to Yankee Stadium. Wow. Any outing with my father was fun. But the Yanks, live and in color? <laughs> this would be a whole new ball game. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we got there early to watch them warm up. My father nudged me. Here they come. And out they trotted. Moose, Whitey, Yogi, Billy, Hank, the scooter. Then, in a voice just above a whisper, over there, kid, it's the Mick. And with one turn of the head, my world would change. I'd seen Mickey Mantle before, but in black and white, and he was six inches tall. <laughs> but there, bathed in sunlight, with his broad shoulders and golden hair and eyes as blue as the seats in Yankee Stadium, was this perfect being. I don't know if a six-and-a-half-year-old can fall in love, but I fell into something. <laughs> During the game, the bat cracked like thunder as he hit a homer, and the crowd went wild. I, I screamed at the top of my lungs, swept up in the thrill. Daddy, I think I love Mickey Mantle. <laughs> my father smiled. We all do, kid. <laughs> Back then, you could run out on the field after the game, and uh, no one would stop you. So I, I grabbed a clump of grass. I just yanked it out of center, right where Mickey stood, and I brought it home. And I put it in a bowl on my dresser. <laughs> my mother, not a sports fan, but a sport, would patiently dust around it. <laughs> waiting for it to die. <laughs> it did, but not my love for Mickey. I'd, I'd cut out his pictures from the sports page and paste them in my, my Mickey scrapbook. His, his number seven became my lucky number and is to this day. At Friday night Shabbat dinners, I'd, I'd go on and on to Aunt Rose about Mickey's latest feats. <laughs> That's nice, sweetie. <laughs> Who wants brisket? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but in time, Aunt Rose, Uncle Hammy, and Maida moved to Park Avenue. We got our own color TV. And my love for Mickey was replaced by others more tangible and immediate. I still followed his career until he retired in 69. I'd never forget him. But I, like Mickey, had moved on. In the 70s, I married and later divorced a blonde-haired, blue-eyed man. I moved to L.A. and in 1980 became a stand-up comic. Whenever I'd go back to New York, I'd visit Aunt Rose and Uncle Hammy, at Christmas time, she'd sing her one and only carol. My husband, Hammy, he's a bum, 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 bum. <laughs> she'd laugh hysterically and kiss his balding head. By 1990, I'd reached success as a comic and done a lot of TV. I flew to New York to join my parents and others for Aunt Rose and Uncle Hammy's 50th wedding anniversary. We were having cocktails at the St. Regis before heading to Lutece for dinner. While sipping a martini with my father, I was drawn to laughter at another table. And once again, with the turn of a head, my world would change. There was Mickey Mantle having drinks with his sons. Over there, Dad, it's the Mick. 
it was four years before he checked into the Betty Ford Center in 94 and die in 95. He still looked good. I had to talk to him. I had to tell him what he meant to me as a child. I was 40 in a sexy black sheath. It was the exact time I was the woman I was meant to be. Not the younger or older version, but the woman standing before Mickey Mantle. I, I hope you don't mind. I'm, I, I really don't want to intrude, but I, I just had to tell you that, that you were my hero. He offered a still boyish smile. I told him about my scrapbook and the clump of grass, and his eyes landed on my chest. <laughs> you know, the way men do without knowing they're doing it. Okay. Okay, that was weird. Then in his Oklahoma drawl, well, thank you. And he introduced me to his sons. You know, you look familiar. Do I know you? I doubt it. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a comedian. You know, no, I've seen you. Um, well, you may have seen me on TV. That's it. I did see you on that, that improv show. You're funny. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> His sons excused themselves off to somewhere else. And then, you know, you're, you're cuter in person, you petite little thing, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? And then his eyes landed again on my chest. <laughs> oh my God. Is Mickey Mantle hitting on me? <laughs> and, and then I thought, no, that's ridiculous. This is, that's absurd. It's, it's fucking Mickey Mantle. <laughs> and then, would you like to have drinks with me? I don't always meet someone funny and sexy. I'm staying right here at the hotel. <laughs> I looked over at Aunt Rose, who curiously looked back. I could hear her in my mind. Hammy, who's she talking to? Doesn't he know we have reservations? She wasn't the only one. I told him I'd be right back and darted over to my father. Dad, he wants me to stay and have drinks. I think he wants to sleep with me. <laughs> Dad, I could sleep with Mickey Mantle. <laughs> we looked over at Mickey. My father said, kid, if I could, I'd sleep with Mickey. <laughs> We looked over at Aunt Rose, who was exaggeratedly tapping her wand. What should I do? My father thought for a beat and said, fuck Mickey Mantle. Wait, what? Are you saying, 
fuck Mickey Mantle or I should fuck Mickey Mantle? <laughs> I don't know. You're a grown woman. Do what you think is right. I looked at Mickey and thought, oh God, he's probably drunk and this could go so wrong. Destroying a childhood memory I held so dear. I looked at Rose and Hammy celebrating 50 years of something gone right. I walked over his table and said my goodbyes. As I walked away, I could feel his eyes on my ass. <laughs> I've waited years to tell this story because according to the age the industry thinks I am, I couldn't possibly have been a child in love with Mickey Mantle. <laughs> According to the age the industry thinks I am, it would still be a few years before I'd even begin developing eyelids. <laughs> but I really don't care anymore, because I'm happy with the woman I am, not the younger or older version, but the woman right here, right now, who remembers her almost night with the Mick. So there I was, unemployed, lying on the carpet in the den, eating Kung Pao chicken, watching this nature show about moths. <laughs> they find their way into these maze-like caves with tiny openings, but they can't find their way back out again. And if they tire of flying and fall to the ground, they get eaten by dung beetles. And if they fly up higher, they're devoured by phosphorescent worms that hang from the ceiling. The moths are cursed to fly around and around, flutter, flutter, flutter with nowhere to land. Eventually, they meet their demise, whether they rise to the top or spiral down to the bottom. And yes, this is a metaphor for Hollywood. <laughs> in 1995, I found my way into the narrow opening of the Cave of Opportunity in an equity waiver theater on Melrose. I played a cheerful gay AIDS patient, which led to a guest star role as a cheerful gay temp on the television series NYPD Blue which miraculously blossomed into a 10-year run as the squad's cheerful gay secretary. <laughs> For a decade, my wings never tired as I soared around the gilded cave, blithely unaware of the curse of the television secretaries. <laughs> Years earlier, I had been forewarned about the dangers of getting trapped in typecasting. Along with scene study and script analysis, my acting teacher thought we needed to learn about what he called our casting where we fit into the business side of show business, who we were from a marketing perspective, our types. I imagine some giant potluck in the sky before the gods send you down to earth. You pull a scrap of paper out of a gigantic punch bowl. A hungry jock pulls out his piece of paper. I got beef. 
A cute blonde girl yells, I got cake. A portly bald guy roars, I got potatoes. You can do a million things with potatoes. I take my tightly folded paper from the bowl and slowly open it. I got mayonnaise. <laughs> mayonnaise. Huh. Well, mayonnaise isn't bad. I mean, you don't want to eat a, you don't want to eat a tuna sandwich without it. Still, I look at the card again. Maybe it's really condiments or salad dressings all inclusive. But no. It's just mayonnaise. And I shouldn't complain, mayonnaise is very good in egg salad, and there are some people who got like shit on a shingle and bowl of maggots. I mean, life's not fair. Mayonnaise, mayonnaise isn't bad, it spreads well, it holds things together, and if you keep it refrigerated, it can last a fairly long time. And this mayonnaise was on a hit series, and if you'll forgive a mixed metaphor, gliding on a warm current of air, things were effortless. People brought me breakfast and lunch and snacks. NYPD Blue afforded me a house and allowed me to travel the world with the USO and to host AIDS walks across the country. I've had the luxury of pursuing less lucrative endeavors too, like the theater and essay writing. <laughs> and I got lots of free hair products. I sat at the receptionist's desk all those years, warm and cozy. I improved my crossword puzzle skills and for the amusement of the crew, I made sure that the paperwork I pretended to shuffle around invariably matched the color of my sweater vest. <laughs> All the while, my arms were feeling pretty strong, but I feared the curse of the television secretaries was moving closer. Flutter, flutter, flutter. You see, I'd become a little obsessed with TV secretaries from the past, and I'd noticed something disturbing. Although charming, funny, and even beloved, many of them hadn't gone on to do much else in their careers. One-hit wonders. Every show needs meat, potatoes, and dessert. You don't need mayonnaise. But I got the curse so wrong. I, I thought I was jinxed because I played a gay character, and this was 1995. My publicist advised me to say, when asked by the press if I was gay, that I didn't talk about my personal life. She said that otherwise I would be trapped playing nothing but gay roles. I tried that for a few months, but felt really stupid when reporters would give me knowing glances and then write something like, Brocktrip is single and lives with a roommate in West Hollywood. <laughs> this felt wrong. Besides, the idea of being typecast as something, anything, rather than being typecast as an unemployed actor was not unappealing. So I got a new publicist and started telling reporters that I was gay and that I still didn't talk about my personal life. <laughs> and then I thought I was cursed because I played a secretary. You see, the secretary or the receptionist or the sassy assistant has to be kind of worked into the story. They can't go to the crime scene or into the pokey to question the perks. The writers have to sort of make up things for them to do. Crack a joke around the water cooler, which makes the penny drop for the detective so that he can go into the pokey and question the perps. Or decorate the office for the Christmas episode. <laughs> I feared that I was non-essential. And as we headed into the last season of NYPD Blue, the cave felt a little colder and my wings a bit frayed when the producers announced that due to rising production costs and slipping ratings, they would be making cutbacks. And at the press tour that summer, I was interviewed by a television journalist who said he wished the writers would give me more to do. And I said, you know, I think of myself as mayonnaise. It adds texture in a really fun way, but you wouldn't want to eat a whole bowl of it. And I think the writers use this character to great effect. They're, they're fantastic chefs. I was always very politic. But later, after a few Manhattans and off the record, I told him that I was concerned about these cutbacks and about my own expendability. 
Nah, they won't fire you, he predicted correctly. You're probably the lowest paid person in the cast. <laughs> Plus, you serve a function. When we see you, we know we're in the squad room. Your cheap atmosphere. <laughs> I shared my fear of the curse with my publicist, who happened to represent a former TV secretary who remained chronically underemployed. Don't worry, honey, he assured me. You won't be like that. She got a divorce, moved out of state, and bought an island. You're different. <laughs> I think a lot about those cave moths flying in never-ending circles, because there is another option one that was never mentioned on Animal Planet. The moths flew into that cave from somewhere. Why didn't they simply fly back out again? Surely they might live safer, more fulfilling lives out in the forest. Why didn't I take my series money and move to an Oregon goat farm, or to a Thai beach, or to the organic cheese collective I visited in Berkeley? <laughs> Are the moths, am I fated to stay in the cave? And like the moth, is it the avoidance of the flame that compels us to fly directly into it? Was my true curse to become exactly the thing I dreaded most? I was so comfortable at my NYPD blue desk. Over the seasons, I, I didn't aspire for more or ask to leave to pursue bigger, more ambitious dreams. I just continued, keeping my head down, trying to avoid the beetles and the phosphorescent worms. And as the series wrapped in 2005, I sat in the makeup trailer listening to other cast members talk about their upcoming plans, the, the pilot offers, the network meetings. I pretended to be ensconced in the New York Times, but I thought, please don't let me be a one-hit wonder. Don't let the curse trap me. A year or two after the show was canceled, work scarce, I was asked to be a celebrity on a pilot for a game show. Now, I love games. Uh, game shows, not so much, but still, <laughs> I go after a day rate, you know. And uh, who am I playing against? But that former TV secretary from my publicist's office. She must have gotten lonely on her island. There we both were, two aging moths clutching buzzers, quite literally searching for answers, trying to stay in the light just a bit longer. In roulette, they say your number will come up. It's just a question of whether you'll be there when it does. Maybe that's the appeal of the cave, the thrill, the danger, the roll of the dice. Uplifting breezes are rare, but the ride is so lovely. So, I keep flying, a little tired, a little worse for wear, because that's just what moths do. Flutter, flutter, flutter.
voice instead of a terrible attitude, but... <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> That's my idea of crowd work. <laughs> uh, my mom said she first knew I was a gloomy Gus when I refused to get out of bed for kindergarten, saying stuff like, what's the point? <laughs> or I do something once but find doing it again distressingly redundant. You know. Stuff like going down a slide. <laughs> the only thing I really enjoyed as a kid was TV shows and movies, so they gave me some unrealistic expectations, like when I took up figure skating, and it was nothing like ice castles. <laughs> I did not win the Nationals. I did not go blind, and no one even who looked remotely like Robbie Benson ever said to my father, not trying is pointless and cruel. <laughs> Both my parents suffered from depression, and I still don't know, do we inherit it or imitate it? Is it uh, nature, nurture, or so just a great activity that families can share? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like playing hungry, hungry hippos in hell. <laughs> I think I was about five years old, but who knows if you ever look back and think, God, I was such a young idiot, I must have been eight when it happened, and your family's like, actually, you were there. <laughs> uh, so I think I was about five, and it was Christmas morning, and we finished opening our gifts, and my dad suddenly got very sad, and I realized I hadn't given him anything, and so I thought that's what's making him sad. So I went to his room, and I grabbed his old slippers, and I wrapped them up in toilet paper, thinking somehow this is a gift, <laughs> and this is a gift that's going to cheer him up. <laughs> I found him sitting in his office in the dark with his head in his hands, and I said, hey, Dad, what you doing? And uh, he said, oh, I'm just sitting here uh, wondering why the hell I was ever born. <laughs> and I looked at my gift, and even in my childish, naive adorableness, I thought, oh, fuck, this is not going to cut it. <laughs> you know, and I put it behind me, and I backed my little butt out of there. But uh, soon enough, he emerged from his office, and he... And I gave it to him, and he was like, I love them. Oh, they fit perfectly. How did you know? <laughs> and he was like, George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, and those slippers were like Lulu's pedals. <laughs> Only my dad didn't hit rock bottom once in his life. He hit it about 10 times a week. <laughs> Out of nowhere, he'd erupt with something like, do you want my advice, Susie? Don't ever get married and have kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then an hour later, he'd be telling me I'm his favorite of his eight kids that he wanted to have. <laughs> At least we saved a lot of money on actual roller coasters. <laughs> I have. It hits me hard and out of the blue, and it's ridiculously dark and illogical, and just as quickly it goes away, and I'm like, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, one time, I fell into one that didn't let up. It was, it was a year after my mom died, and my boyfriend and I broke up. He said 
he didn't feel like he made me happy, and I was unable to convince him, no, no, this is as happy. <laughs> <laughs> my mom said to me, literally, on her deathbed was, marry him. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, she didn't say that because she could no longer speak. She wrote it laboriously on paper. Marry him. <laughs> and when I laughed, she underlined it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Catholic kind of felt like I left her, let her down, you know, for all eternity. <laughs> so these were the kind of thoughts swirling in my head, and it just, it wasn't letting up for weeks, this depression, it was building until one night I thought, you know, maybe I should kill myself. <laughs> and after just some deliberation, I thought, this is a great idea. I'll, I'll do it, uh, I'll do the old head in the gas oven routine, go out Sylvia Plath style, it's very luminary. I wrote a note to my dad apologizing, you know, saying it was depression. I figured he'd understand that. <laughs> <laughs> then I sat there with the oven door open and breathing the gas, but like just as quickly, I thought, okay, well, this is ridiculous. I could, I could kill somebody. <laughs> and I turned it off and I opened the windows and, uh, and I sat there and I, but still it freaked me out. So I called suicide hotline because I thought suicide hotline offered depressed people free immediate over the phone <laughs> and maybe some long-term counseling, maybe even group counseling, like with a Bob Newhart type counselor. And, you know, I could be the funny Jack Riley patient. So, uh, so I was a bit surprised uh, shortly after my by talking to my suicide preventer, when to find two police officers at my door. <laughs> and though I tried to convince them that I was absolutely no longer feeling suicidal, they handcuffed me and took me to county hospital and booked me on a 72-hour psych lockdown. <laughs> well, I was pissed. I felt very Jessica Lang and Francis. <laughs> I mean, if they had asked me my occupation, I'm absolutely sure I would have written down, cocksucker. And <laughs> <laughs> in I went. Inside the psych ward was a nurse's station protected by a floor-to-ceiling metal gate, and that's how the nurses interacted with us, is through this nurse ratchet-like window gate. And they gave me a toothbrush and a pill, which I refused to take just like Francis. <laughs> the rest of the psych ward was one big open room with beds and tables. It, in the, it, it was the middle of the night, so the other patients were sleeping, and I was shocked to discover that there were crazy men sleeping in beds right next to insane women. <laughs> <laughs> I was given the bed next to a young Mexican girl. She looked about 15, and across from me there was this weird guy sitting bolt upright in his bed staring at me. <laughs> so I did not sleep that night. Uh, later that morning, another patient arrived, uh, only this one wasn't handcuffed. He was fully strapped to a plank with about a dozen belts, and his face was in a Hannibal Lecter mask. <laughs> they wheeled this monster into a special back room where I assume they tied him down and threw him raw meat. <laughs> I waited for the Mexican girl to wake up, and when she did, I asked her if she would please go to the bathroom with me and watch the door while I peed. She looked much older when uh, she wasn't sleeping, and it turns out she was 29. She told me uh, she had tried to overdose on pills because she felt guilty 
about having an abortion. I told her, hey, I'm Catholic too. <laughs> It seemed immediately apparent to us that we were the sanest of the crazies, and out of sheer terror, we just began to hold hands, and we didn't let go. We held hands waiting in line for breakfast, watching TV while she called her parents, while I checked my messages. Nobody called. <laughs> <laughs> we just held hands, and while one did anything, the other one scanned the room for any sudden movements. I thought of ordinary people, and I wondered if we'd be friends later in the real world, and, and even coffee shops at various stages of denial. I think this is gonna be the best year yet, Mexican girl. <laughs> <laughs> On the second day, her parents showed up for a visit and she introduced me to them. And uh, her parents seemed very concerned about uh, her, they, but they acted as if I was the doctor and she was the patient. Racism. She wanted to go <laughs> She said, uh, but they told her she was going to be transferred to a long-term facility, a thought that terrified me. I gave her a hug goodbye, and, I, and she gave me her phone number, and I watched the police escort her out. I sat alone now, listening to a nurse try to explain to a Japanese woman who spoke no English that a stranger hadn't tried to cut her throat. She had done that to herself. <laughs> I was feeling saner by the minute. <laughs> I talked to a 16-year-old boy. He was a prostitute, and he and he said he just acted crazy for the cops, uh, you know, just to get a place to sleep. I tried to help him think of a family member or a friend who would take him in. I tried to convince him that being a prostitute might not be the best choice for his life. I wasn't very successful. For some reason, he wasn't taking advice from the lady of the psych ward. <laughs> I sat alone again, and I looked out the window, and there was this thin tree in a small circle of dirt surrounded by concrete. And I thought about the trees behind my great apartment, and I thought about playing single girl in the basement just like Laverne and Shirley. And I thought, wait, I never wanted to get married. And suddenly I felt fine. And thankfully, I was out of there the next day. A few months later, I called my Mexican friend from the psych ward. I, I thought enough time had passed and that maybe we could laugh about it. <laughs> she said she had no idea who I was or what I was talking about. <coughs> she said she'd never been in the psych ward, and she hung up on me. And I thought, well, at least I finally had an experience that was just as exciting as the movies. The horror movies! <laughs> <laughs> I'm due for another immobilizing fit of despondency. Good night, everyone. <laughs>
goodbye is defined in the Urban Dictionary as leaving quietly out the side door without saying goodbye to anyone. <laughs> Mostly due to the fact that family or friends would take your keys away for being too intoxicated. <laughs> also referred to as ghosting. It's a great way to leave a party, but not a great way to leave a relationship. <laughs> the first person I dated who ghosted told me that he lived in the forest with no cell reception. <laughs> and he only came into town for jobs, so when he was in town, I'd hear from him, and when he wasn't, I wouldn't. I ran into a friend of his who asked us to come to a party, and I said, well, I can, but he can't because he's in the woods right now. <laughs> He was like, oh, is he camping? And I said, no, he's in the forest where he lives. <laughs> and he said, dude, he doesn't live in a forest. He lives on Melrose. <laughs> That's when I realized he only lived in the forest to me. My most recent Irish goodbye happened whilst I was dating an actual Irishman. Thank you. <laughs> actual Irish accent and everything. He was handsome and charming and I thought it's so wonderful that he can drink four to six whiskeys a night and not be an alcoholic. He's just Irish. <laughs> For the sake of anonymity and because he wore blazers with shoulder pads, we'll just call him Paula Poundstone. <laughs> there was an actual earthquake. He would say things like, you are my seal mate. You had me ever since the earthquake. <laughs> I've never felt like this before. I am in Leo with you. I don't do accents. <laughs> he was the guy who said, this is so special and precious. <laughs> We need to protect it. If there is ever an issue, we need, to, we, need to, we need to get on the phone immediately and fix it. That is why it was especially surprising when one day he vanished. Vaporized, gone. I texted, emailed, called, and left messages crying. Please, just let me know that you're okay. Since he lived behind a gate I didn't know how to get into, I even asked his friend to please go check on him. His friend seemed very casual. Like, yeah, it used to make me mad too, but now I never worry about him until it's been a week. <laughs> Nonchalant friend didn't seem to understand. Maybe Irish BF had done this to guy friends or girls he didn't really care about, but we were in the up. <laughs> we were seolmates. I couldn't tell if he was actually dead or just blowing me off and not telling me. Again, I asked the friend, can you please just let me know you've seen or talked to him and that he's okay so I can stop worrying? A week passed and no word, and then suddenly Irish BF liked a photo on my Facebook page. I'm sorry, liked. <laughs> and that's when I realized he was only dead to me. I was grieving a person's life, distraught, confused, unable to sleep or eat, when meanwhile my Irish BF was very much alive in the next neighborhood over, like shopping at Trader Joe's or watching the World Cup. <laughs> a disappearing boyfriend was not anywhere on my vision board. He always told me I was heroin because he couldn't stop kissing me. I guess he had gone cold turkey. 
Friends said maybe he just didn't have the words to communicate. I found that hard to believe from a man who wrote song lyrics for a living. After nine days, I sent him an email that had closure, but also left things open. <laughs> in the email, I tried to be super cool, like, you're a very special person in my life, and I would have loved to have worked it out with you, but I understand if you can't do this right now. Being a human is hard, man. <laughs> I want whatever's best for you. I'm on your team. He responded, Dearest Melinda, <laughs> you mean the world to me. This past week has been very hard. I really went dark, but it's not your fault. It's family stuff. You are a treasure, a gorgeous woman, and I truly love you. XO. <laughs> I guess he was saying his Irish goodbye had actually meant, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> Trying to get away from you without telling you. <laughs> Another week passed and he continued liking my Facebook photos, sending me cryptic texts saying that he loved me so much, this was very painful, and he just had so much going on with family and work. My therapist urged me to reach out again and just ask, are we still going out or not? I was starting to feel like she hadn't read, he's just not that into you. <laughs> it was like a classic love story where the couple are madly in love but can't be together because the man has to go off to fight a war, except in this scenario, there was no war, just a guy in Silver Lake drinking Jameson. <laughs> It was like a romantic comedy where the guy almost loses the girl, so he makes a mad dash running through city streets to get her back, knocking over hot dog stands. Except in this scenario, the guy was not making any effort at all whatsoever. <laughs> and dressed like Paula Poundstone. <laughs> Soon I blocked him on Facebook, and he emailed saying he was beyond outraged and that if we never saw each other again, just to know that it was real love XO. <laughs> a dangerous thing for me to do is to try to figure anything out that doesn't make sense. It leads to obsessive thinking, and obsessive thinking takes me to a very dark place called deep dish pizza. <laughs> Whenever possible, it is best for me just to let things go. I'll paint the picture of Breakup Binge 2012. My ex left. For the sake of anonymity, we'll call him Burrito Body. <laughs> I ordered a pizza and proceeded to eat it by myself on my couch. Sure, it had some toppings, and by toppings I mean baguettes, brownies, and several bottles of wine. <laughs> I was hiding away in a carved castle behind a moat of tears. Eventually I felt sick and guilty, and I put the remaining pizza out on the trash bins for someone less fortunate to eat, perhaps a homeless person. <laughs> Two hours passed, I got hungry again, brought the pizza back in. <laughs> Finished the entire thing and realized I'm the person who's less fortunate. <laughs> is what is actually happening. <laughs> and what was actually happening was his 
actions were not matching his words. It was hard, but I finally had to send Paula Poundstone an email, citing that his confusing behavior was a deal breaker <laughs> for me, and asking him to please not contact me anymore so that my heart could have time to heal. I try to have compassion about these things. I mean, sometimes the language of the heart can be difficult to speak when one person has a language barrier and no heart. <laughs> but really, sometimes a person can no longer be in a thing and just isn't able to say it, and we have to have compassion. I'm no innocent on this front. I was on a first date once with a guy when I had an adverse reaction to him. <laughs> I leapt out of his car at a stoplight and ran down the street, and I later texted something super lame and unacceptable, like, sorry, I was going through a rough time. <laughs> <laughs> One time I broke up with a boyfriend on the phone from LAX where I was flying to be with another guy in New York. I didn't want to call him from my house because I was afraid he'd show up there and change my mind. <laughs> I mean, yes, I did say something, and I didn't keep stringing these guys along with empty I love yous, but my point is, we've all gone into the woods with no phone to some degree or another. Growing up, my family moved 27 times, and sometimes we left in the middle of the night, so I didn't always get to say goodbye to my friends. I often feel like I missed out on getting some kind of really important closure that I needed. That's why I love making art with people. Relationships are fleeting, but having a permanent, tangible relic of our time together is very comforting to me. But what if, just maybe, everything that was supposed to be said had been said, and there was nothing else to say? And what if I don't try to hold on, but just let it be enough that we enjoyed, however fleeting, a beyond surreal soul connection, 14-hour kisses, and insistence that I borrow his favorite Star Wars t-shirt when I said, no, I'll just leave it here for next time I stay over, not knowing there would be a next time, not knowing there would be no next time. And instead of trying to figure out what happened to it, just be grateful that we had it at all. I couldn't really figure out how to end this story, so I guess I'll just end it the Irish way. <laughs> <laughs> job watching DVDs before they came out. I watched them for quality control purposes, making sure there weren't problems with the picture or sound. Also, I had to press every button on the DVD menu using a remote, which would often give me thumb cramps. <laughs> once, once a disc was approved, copies were made and sold to you, the common people. <laughs> It was difficult to describe this job to civilians. <laughs> there were frequently asked questions. How did you get this job? <laughs> A friend worked at the company. Were there any special qualifications? Yes, you had to know how to put a DVD into a DVD player. <laughs> were the DVDs you watched porn? Sadly, no, they were just average movies like Raging Bull. 
I once... I once told a peppy girl at a party about my job, and her response was, that's awesome. What is Brad Pitt's next movie going to be? I had no idea. All I did was watch DVDs. Or as my apartment manager told the other tenants, Carlos edits movies for Hollywood. <laughs> I didn't have to fix any problems, I simply had to find them. There was always something. For example, the DVD for Home Alone 2 had audio from beginning to end from Home Alone 1. <laughs> It took me 15 minutes to figure that out. <laughs> My job wasn't as easy as you might think. I'd have to watch the movie in as many different audio and subtitle streams as were present on the disc, not only for the United States, but for countries around the world. Consequently, I'd end up watching the same movie repeatedly. One day, I was assigned to watch Dances with Wolves six times. <laughs> If you've never had the opportunity to watch Dances with Wolves six times in a row, you've missed a chance to go on an emotional journey of self-discovery. The first time you watch Dances with Wolves, it's fine, Tatanka means buffalo. The second time you watch Dances with Wolves, you say to yourself, I just watched this. <laughs> Tatanka means buffalo. <laughs> After you've watched it twice, you're feeling good because you only have to watch Dances with Wolves four more times. <laughs> the third time you watch it, you're in a rage. <laughs> You're glad the Native Americans lost their land. <laughs> the fourth time you watch it, you're grief-stricken because the Native Americans lost their land. <laughs> the fifth time, you're drooling. You're eating applesauce, you don't know how you got it or why you're eating it. <laughs> The sixth and final time you watch Dances with Wolves, you're at peace. You're also fluent in the Lakota Sioux. Chumani Tutankwa Owachi. That means I'm never watching that fucking movie. Dances with Wolves is not my record. I had to watch Avatar 22 times. Avatar is not my record. I had to watch Mission Impossible 2 37 times. For a while, this was my life. At the end of each day, a project manager would call and tell me that the next day I would be headed to an authoring facility in Burbank or Culver City or beautiful downtown Torrance. <laughs> One afternoon, the project manager surprised me by saying, Carlos, 
Tomorrow you'll be watching the 25th anniversary DVD of This Is Spinal Tap in Wilkesbury. <clears throat> I asked him what part of Los Angeles was Wilkesbury in. <laughs> he told me Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'd need to fly on the red eye that night to Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. I would be picked up in the morning and driven to a place called Whammo, the manufacturing plant where they made the physical DVD copies. I was expected to start watching This Is Spinal Tap upon my arrival. So get plenty of sleep on the plane, advised the project manager. It was one of the greatest DVD emergencies of our time. <laughs> I asked the project manager if I was being sent because I was the best. He replied, not at all. I've called around and no one else wants to go. <laughs> He went on to explain that the Spinal Tap DVD had been mistakenly approved. The numerous titles that appear throughout the movie had been accidentally removed. There wasn't time to ship another master copy to Los Angeles. Instead, a quality control analyst needed to be shipped to the plant in order to verify the titles had been put back, at which point the new copies would immediately be printed. The project manager asked if I understood. I told him, not really. <laughs> He told me to have a good flight. I flew to Philadelphia, then took a small plane to the small airport in the small town of Wilkesbury. A guy named John picked me up. He smiled and remarked, you must be the best of the best if they're flying you out from Los Angeles. I told him I was. <laughs> On the drive to Whammo, John asked me a little bit about my work. When I described watching the same movie multiple times, he said, if I had that job, I would shoot myself in the face. <laughs> we arrived at Whammo about half an hour later. It looked like a factory where they manufactured nuclear bombs. I met John's supervisor, also named John. He informed me... <laughs> He informed me they were having technical issues and weren't ready. I had a few hours of free time. John suggested I take the Lackawanna coal mine tour. So I did. Life can be funny. One day you're watching The Passion of the Christ 11 times. The next you're headed 300 feet underground in a Pennsylvania coal mine. After learning much more about anthracite coal mining than I ever dreamed possible, I called Whammo. They still weren't ready. John suggested I have lunch at Benihana. He promised me it wasn't just a meal, it was an experience. So I rented a car and drove to Benihana. At Benihana, I experienced a guy cutting meat in front of me really fast, then I ate it. <laughs> Then I called John. They needed more time. I drove to my modest hotel, watched Police Academy on HBO, and fell asleep. The next morning, John informed me it would take a few days to fix their issues. I was free to do whatever I wanted until then. Since I had done everything there was to do in Wilkesbury, I told John I wanted to fly to Providence, Rhode Island, and visit my good friend from high school, Chuck Lundy. Surprisingly, the studio approved the expense. Judging by the size of the propeller plane, I'm guessing the ticket costs around $30. <laughs> the only 
other passenger on the plane was a nun wearing her habit, which is what they call a nun's outfit for some reason. <laughs> Life can be funny. <laughs> One day you're underground in a Pennsylvania coal mine. <laughs> the next you're headed to Rhode Island with a flying nun. <laughs> she was friendly. Her eyes widened when she heard about my job. She exclaimed, how exciting. I've never been on a plane with a movie director. <laughs> she told me she would pray for me in my upcoming spinal tap. <laughs> my friend Chuck was super happy when he picked me up. After graduating from high school, he had moved to Rhode Island to attend what he was told was the best business school in the country, Johnson and Wales. It wasn't until the first day of school that Chuck discovered while business was offered as an elective, Johnson and Wales was mainly a cooking school. <laughs> Chuck was not good at quality control. For seven years, he'd been asking me to visit. I had finally arrived. On the way to Chuck's apartment, I got a call from John. They were ready and needed me to return right away. We stopped at Chuck's place long enough for me to pee, and he drove me back to the airport. Essentially, I flew to Rhode Island to take a leak in Chuck's apartment. I promised him I would return. At Whammo, I finally started watching This Is Spinal Tap. People would come into my room every few minutes and ask if everything was okay. I said yes, although I wasn't sure I was tired from my whirlwind trip around the Northeast. <laughs> when I finally gave the thumbs up, John pushed a button, and I saw 500,000 copies being pressed all at once. I remember thinking, I hope I didn't miss anything. <laughs> I went back to Rhode Island three years later and witnessed Chuck graduate after 10 years of attending Johnson & Wales. <laughs> As a graduation gift, I gave him the flawless special edition 25th anniversary DVD of This Is Spinal Tap. All Chuck needed now was a DVD player. <laughs>